Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Right now you're listening to Dr. Stephen R. Sharkey, Professor of Sociology of Alverno College, speaking on proposing a Catholic sociology of sex and gender to postmodern culture. This talk is part of the Society of Catholic Social Scientists series. I felt the, the need to study this topic to know what the church was saying today about uh, the role of women and men in society. And uh, for, partly for that reason, but partly also because, as I say in the, in the presentation, uh, I believe that there's a serious issue, and the issue is that the fundamental binary that the entire culture is built around, which is a male-female, what uh, Romano Guardini calls an op- a polar opposition. These are they're different but complementary entities, types of human beings, is being fundamentally challenged. And it's being, this is a quote that is actually not in your PowerPoint uh, set from uh, a contemporary scholar, Michelle Schumacher, who's done a lot of really good work in this area and published one of the early uh, collections of essays uh, about how much of contemporary feminism attacks uh, the idea that there is a nature that is not socially constructed. So this is, uh, some of this goes all the way back to Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, in which she argues that uh, women are, in order to uh, achieve anything in the world, have to basically leave their bodies at the door. They have to check their bodies at the door. So there's a long tradition in feminism of the idea that for women to be full people, they must uh, deny their uh, biological identities. So uh, what that means is that the feminist denial of nature in the name of women's freedom to self-determination is thus part of a much larger problematic. And that larger problematic is something I'm trying to go after a little bit today. This is a recent Time Magazine cover from August 1913, and I was called to my attention by an article <clears throat> in a syndicated column by Father Robert Barron, who did the Catholicism series. And if you're ever interested in debating popular culture, go to his YouTube series. Uh, if you just Google Father Robert Barron, he has all kinds of things, like you know, a five-minute Catholic response to the Hunger Games. Uh, very good. But he, he caught sight of this. And maybe if you look at it, what do, what do you see? This is an article that celebrates the child-free life. What do you, what do you see in this picture? Yes. What are they doing? Yes, they're having, this is the good life. This is the good life. And the article, uh, I forget the name of the author, uh, is basically about how these people, darn it, have as much right to their autonomy and freedom as anybody else, and to impose the idea that they should have children is a form of discrimination. So now we're seeing an identity politics movement of child-free people coming into being, which is to help them realize that it's perfectly fine for them to be you know, at Sandals or wherever they are uh, without kids, because kids are just a socially imposed script. And if you, it's perfectly fine to be happy. And this happens to be a sort of hetero couple, but you know that that argument extends uh, into other groups. The heart, of the, the heart of the matter here is what I call fluidity. And fluidity means uh, just what it says. If you're, 
We're not Jesus, and when we try to walk on water or puddles or ice, we tend to slide around a lot. And so in our contemporary culture, there's a whole sociological tradition of talking about um, how people have, in a way, lost their bearings. And this used to be, I, I think, a kind of a form of, a somewhat of a form of nostalgia for a pre-industrial period, a kind of a little house on the prairie model when we were all in big families and rural and knew our neighbors and didn't lock our doors and, you know, barn raising. But that, that's not the case anymore. Uh, sociology now realizes that the uprootedness, okay, of our society is now rippling out into its effects in very profound ways at the structural level, the largest macro level, the meso level of the structure of communities that people live in, and the micro level, which is to say our interpersonal relationships and um, our interior life, our own sense of who we are. Now this uh, is a threat to, it's, it's a direct threat to, uh, this fluidity is a direct threat to the Christian worldview. And just to give a couple of examples, if you go to the I mean, we probably know this already because of you know, what, what you know about your faith, but the catechism, the 1994 catechism, puts the discussion of male-female complementarity in the very first chapter in the part where you talk about whether you believe in God or not. So it's very much up front, and the idea here is that the male-female relationship is metaphorically a presentation of the Trinitarian love where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are different but equal. So, and this idea of a spousal a metaphor of the relationship between priesthood and priest, priesthood and, and, and the church, and between couples producing, creating, because of their differences, coming together to create new life. So this is a really cruel, crucial idea. And it's, from our point of view, this is reality with a capital R. And so when Benedict XVI is concerned about this and he talks about the dictatorship of relativism, you've probably all heard that term, that he has to use a word like dictatorship, which is, you know, from his experience growing up, you know, under Nazism, he really means not just cultural change and people changing their perceptions of things, but quite frankly, the fist of the state. Because in order to change reality, we have to change the way we think, but you also need the power of the state to force reality to be different. Now, you can't really ever succeed at that because reality comes back to bite you, and there's all kinds of interesting sociology now about how that's the case. So this paper is a little bit about two things. It's about what happened and why, and I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the sociology which has to do with the broader social changes in which uh, fluidity of sex and gender uh, occur, and then a little bit about how the church responds. And primarily, that's a conversation about two things, reaffirming the core teachings of a marriage and family life, and we see a lot of that. But I want to talk particularly today a little bit about new feminism. How many people have ever heard that term? New feminism? Okay. So the first question is about uprootedness. And uh, as I said before, sociology has a long tradition of talking about uh, the shift from fairly stable social 
institutions for a very long period of time, not that they weren't full of, had conflict, but they were stable, to a situation of what many people consider an advanced rate of social change. In other words, the, the rate of change, kind of like population, is on a J-curve. And so one change leads to another, and pretty soon that spiral happens, and a lot of institutions are changing very quickly. Now, my students will talk about whether an iPhone 5 is different from a, a laptop. But just think about that, the rate of change that's involved in the technology that we use every day, and how confusing you feel. But we could say the same thing on a macro level, in a certain sense, about society. This, that's connected to what many uh, Catholic analysts, George Weigel, for example, or Romano Guardini earlier, talk about Gnosticism and ideas. So there are structural changes moving with an increased, rapidly, an, uh, an increased rate of change, and then a rise of Gnosticism. <clears throat> and Weigel, in his book on evangelical the new evangelization in, in, uh, in, in, Catholic, in the Catholic Church, he talks a lot about Gnosticism. He writes a lot about this. John Paul II wrote a lot about this because this is the idea, basically, that reality is what you will to power. So the Gnosticism is a secret knowledge that enables you to um, find the special truth for yourself. And since that's a subjective experience, you have to have an affirmation of that subjectivity, which is very powerful. And over time, that turns basically into political power. So many, many people, for example, would argue that the origins of the totalitarian state have a lot to do with Gnosticism and philosophy and religion. There is some interesting language that social scientists have to create to talk about this. And one of the people I kind of like to read is uh, Zygmunt Bauman. And he writes, he's a German, uh, excuse me, a Polish sociologist, not particularly Christian or Catholic, but um, sensitive to the problems. And he uses the phrase liquid modernity, liquid modernity. And what he means by that is that basically everything is up for negotiation. And that the experience of growing up in a liquid society is a society in which you have to assume that what's true today might not be true tomorrow. And an example of this in research literature would be the experience of children who just assume that divorce is probably going to happen in their experience. Or uh, the idea that you would have a stable career, maybe one or two jobs in the course of your life, that's sort of totally wrong now. Five, six, seven transitions, entirely likely. And another example uh, would be the, the existence of the category called emerging adults, which is to say there's a whole period uh, in, West, in Europe, particularly in the United States, where there's a group of people who are between about 17 and maybe 30, hard to say, when your life isn't really settling down. And they're called emerging adults. So they're <clears throat> now in order to cope, I don't know if you've ever gone ice skating, but or skiing, downhill skiing, when you start sliding, you gotta be really careful. And so Bauman and other people talk about you have to, if you're a good skater, you don't even know you're on the ice. You're just, you're just sliding right along. And so the culture encourages people to be somewhat frictionless. And that's the term that will show up. So able to move from job to job, hey, no problem. Move from relationship to relationship, hey, no problem. Faith and religion, well, 
spiritual, not religious, uh, kind of portable ideas that can shift and change around. And particularly, you want to avoid the friction of conflict over judgments or anything that might anchor you in a particular tradition because that's like hitting a bump on the ice. It can slow you down. It would be like Velcro on your ice skates. You wouldn't want to be hung up. Remember that phrase? Are you hung up? Are you hung up on love? Are you hung up on... So to be hung up is to create a situation where you might not be open to what you've got to do to survive in the fluid society. A uh, lot of literature here. One, the literature on simulated or pseudo-communities. Uh, these are communities that are, for example, created replications of traditional villages. Uh, the tradition there is new urbanism, where you, I don't know, if you've ever been in a suburb with some kind of strange name like, you know, Bubbling Brook, and there's no brook, <laughs> you know, or there's an artificial brook. So there's a tradition of analyzing the, the pseudo-communities that are created, that are meant to echo the past. There's some interesting work on <clears throat> the kinds of instant homes that are created for corporate executives who have to move around a lot. And uh, for example, there are companies now that'll build you a personal office. You send them a bunch of digital files and you fly to Rochester, New York tomorrow morning and you've got an office with your family pictures and your, you know, your hunting trip in California, all set. So there are these sl sliding things that are happening. Alone together. This is a phrase used by Sherry Turkle to talk about the social relationships of people who are online all the time in the same room. And you, you know, there are lots of jokes about this on television, about you're supposed to be having a conversation and you're both kind of looking at your, 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 your online on Facebook. Or you'd rather text somebody rather than talk to them personally. And BFF, that's best friends forever, means that that term friend has slid around. Hookup culture, probably there's a lot of literature about that that you might be familiar with. But the concept that people talk about when they figure out how people morally navigate that, they talk about something called limited liability hedonism. So it's kind of uh, what the Barnard president said the other day, Barnard College. She said, I don't, my women, it's a women's college still, are, I'm fine with their interest in hookup culture as long as they choose it. And she doesn't see any problem with that because they're managing the damage. The substitution of market relations for primary relations. This is the growing business and you see a lot of ads. We have a small family world. There's nobody to take care of grandma. So you hire a company to do it. And there's a whole literature now about people uh, renting professional party planners. We're not talking about just wedding planners. You know, how do you create your birthday party for little Julie? Uh, in the literature about uh, particularly young adults, we see the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism, which is to say that religion consists of a vague sense of don't hurt anybody <clears throat> as long as, and the point of, of life and relationships with the religion is to be therapeutically feeling good about yourself. And of course, deism suggests that God is sort of off there someplace that you kind of call on at a funeral. Therapeutic familism refers to the term uh, <clears throat> of what happens when uh, parents aren't authorities any longer, they're your pals. So you'll see a lot of this on television. 
children needing to authentically talk about everything with their parents, and their parents authentically talking about why they have, you know, affairs with their kids. Specifically, when we come to sex and gender, this sliding around the fluidity can be traced back to a separation of the term sex and gender in, in the social sciences, which existed for a while but sort of came to the fore in the 60s. And in the beginning, sex was understood to be different from gender in the sense that one's biological makeup could be established and identified, and then there was a certain social script that went, in it, went, went with it. So to be <clears throat> a male in Inuit hunter-gatherer culture was not the same as being a male in Milan. So we understand that there are social and cultural differences in the scripts associated with being masculine and feminine, but we still cling to the idea that there's something called sex, which is to say a biological substratum that's basically kind of untouchable, has to do with genitalia. Over time, this gets split apart, and <clears throat> gender and sex are both understood, both understood to be a social construction. Now, it's one thing to say, well, you know, that women can only be June Cleaver housewives and that, that they can be lawyers too. I mean, that's one way to talk about an issue, to criticize the social scripts. But it's another thing when you start getting down in and start saying, you know, the idea of sexuality itself, that's up for grabs also. And that's what we've seen in about the last 20 years in feminism, is the rise of a kind of feminism that says it's not just the gender roles we're playing with here, who can be an airplane pilot and who can be in a combat unit in the army and who can stay at home and take care of the kids. We're also talking about sex itself is considered to be a political construct, uh, the, the appearance of which is a result of power relations in society. So down in the red territory here, we see um, sexual identity is fluidized into a series of variously equally morally equal uh, possibilities and that um, the social movements come around to rational, rationally uh, justify these, these, these positions. And then <clears throat> right where we are now, the norms and laws are starting to change to accommodate that. We get this. This is I took from uh, online. It's a fellow who was doing a blog about all the different identity labels that are floating around out there about sex and gender. Now, count them up. Uh, and each one, actually each one of these is, you, will, will show up in the literature here about the relationship between a, a, a culturally relative sex and a culturally relative gender, and then you sort of do the math and start changing the combinations around and you get a picture like this. So in the paper, this is what, if you were like really hip and uh, tuned into this, you'd have to be aware of all of these people. Well, there are people who were born male but claimed to be female or claimed to be androgynous, but they basically like women or they're bisexual. And there are all of these categories floating around and in the, uh, the social movements that are about the identity politics of each of these groups, there'll be discussions about which of these are more authentic identities than others. At the institutional level, the movements develop new symbologies. This I stole from Ann and Hendershot's recent article in, in Catholic World Report about the transgender movement. And you, you can kind of, isn't this interesting? This is the transgender movement symbol. And you can see that it's, it's slippery, you know? It's, it's combining things, all right. 
It's combining things. And there, if you go on the websites where this comes from, this is, a pride, this is a pride element. And transgender people will be very clear that they're neither lesbian nor gay. The paper <clears throat> really is full of a long litany of all the studies that show how this kind of process over time starts to bite us in the tail and in the head because it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And so we get to see uh, what we might call consequentialist uh, problems. Now we might, as Catholics, have an ontological uh, re resistance to this because of who we think the person is in terms of their sexual identity in God's creation. We might have uh, another kind of uh, resistance to this because of what we think the purpose is, the teleological purpose is of sexual relationships, the purpose, the end purpose of them. What the social sciences can do is add to that conversation by talking about the consequences. And if you have a copy of the paper, if you could, let me see here. If you could go to pages 13 and 14 in that paper. And this, this showed up in, I mean, Mary Eberstadt, you may know her work. She's written some really interesting things about how this biting us back process is starting to happen and how the, sta the stability of the family structures and the success of a society by various empirical measures are very, she talks about it as a DNA strand and that's becoming a popular way to talk about the causality. But at the bottom there, you see a list of characteristics that a guy named Carl Zimmerman in a book called Family and Civilization produced in 1947. And he saw this by his analysis of 2,000 years of Western history in addition to some stuff about China that he throws in. And if you just look at the list, this is what's going to happen, he says, and he's predicting this based on studies of life in the 30s and 40s. Here we go. Causeless divorce, less children, population decay, by which he means population implosion, increased public disrespect for parents. Ever been told that three kids, oh, you have three children, much less five. And you go down the list. Pessimistic doctrines about the early heroes. You know, George Washington, well, Jefferson was really just a slave owner. Not that he wasn't, but we begin to see the erosion of the, the founding figures in a kind of a critical way. And it's kind of really interesting that all of these are sort of true. So he was a really good sociologist. <laughs> that he was, there aren't too many people who predict very well, and he's, he's one of them. The next question really is, how am I doing on time? Ten minutes. Um, there are two kind of responses to this. I think the church was frankly pushed back on its heels for a while and it tended to respond with a lot of internal documents aimed at church people. Uh, very interesting documents, very thoughtful documents, but things aimed at bishops, not so much at priests particularly because they were assumed to be out there struggling on the, how do I put this delicately? They're, they have their pastoral concerns. So you, you probably know priests who will say things like about birth control, well, use your conscience. 
they have a struggle. But the, the church was very internal about this, and there's a breaking out of that, particularly since John Paul II. And there's this movement about new evangelization that John Allen wrote about in 2009 in his book called Future Church, and then this was, has been picked up by Weigel. Uh, it's kind of, that's what he's on television talking about now. Uh, and this is basically, the whole church needs to focus no, less on uh, doctrinal problems and issues and more on the personal encounter with Christ, which makes some people leery because it starts to sound Protestant, but they don't really mean it that way because Benedict XVI talked about this also. So that's certainly one thing. But another thing that's emerging is a feminism inside the church, very orthodox, that is very aware of the, uh, the accuracy of some of the early critiques of sexism uh, on, about society and, and also in the, in the church hierarchy. And the new feminists use uh, the new evangelization gesture to the world, uh, in that sense very Vatican II, authentically, and then a new Catholic, a, a Catholic sociological imagination which is to integrate a lot of secular sociological ideas and thought with a lot of authentic Catholic social thought to produce uh, a kind of a, an analytic framework that draws the best from both traditions to develop Catholic social teaching. And I've written about that in a number of different places. And that's kind of, this is what new evangelization is. Particularly this last point, last couple, witnessing the brokenness of life in this country, in this culture. So if you listen to, just listen to something by Colleen Carroll Campbell the other day. And she'll say, all the women who tried to have it all, or who regret their abortion, or somebody else would be uh, like Melissa Selmus, who's a columnist who talks about her lesbian youth and her politically radical youth and her tattoos and her piercings. And then she sort of hit the wall and it just didn't work. So there's a, there's a lot of witness to this. Helen Alvarez just wrote a book called Breaking Through in this tradition. And then Rediscovering Catholic Truths in a New Light. I'm looking at one of my colleagues who's I think here at the first meeting, we were joking about being ex-Marxists uh, and how in sociology that's sort of what you did if you were raised in an, and studied in a certain period of time. Uh, and then that fails. The Catholic sociological imagination can be defined this way, that it integrates Catholic social thought and secular social science to do these things in order to further advance Catholic social teaching. If you want to talk about that some more later, we can. The new feminism is uh, maybe some of the most important stuff here. Really, what I found interesting in beginning, and just to begin the research, was that the idea that women have an equal place in society goes at least back into the 1880s in an explicit way. And even sooner, uh, there's some scholars that'll find references to uh, male and female equal, authentic equality back into the, 14, into the 1500s. So this goes way back. The frame now is not so much just defending the male priesthood, which was what a lot of gender stuff was about. No, you don't understand why women can't be priests. It's beyond just marital relationships, which is still often a, a, a constant emphasis, and acknowledging sexism as a sociological fact. 
that it's simply a lot of data that says that there's discrimination based on gender, and that's 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 just we just have to go from that. Central premises. Yes, five minutes. I'll finish. Um, the first one is complementarity, and in particular, uh, this is this is a very deep theme. Maybe it can, can come out more in, in some of the conversation. That. Uh, equal in dignity plus difference in expression of God's creation. So we are all equal as children of God, and yet we're different. Males and females are, are fundamentally different in their experience of the world and in their experience of their bodies. That split that I talked about between sex and gender in new feminism, that elastic, it was snapped. It's now, they're now, they're not completely uh, the same, but they're pulled closer together so that we hold on to the idea that the biological differences are important. That doesn't mean that there aren't people with homosexual tendencies or transgender struggles, but it means that the creation model itself is basically polar of a certain kind, but not polar in the sense of antagonistic. Uh, some people talk about integral complementarity, which is to say that when a woman and man get together, it's one plus one equals three. The second thing that they'll argue is that male-female equality is a moral issue. It's a human right basis, and that shows up in things like the United Nations documents about uh, human rights. Uh, so it's not just a political question, it's a foundational right to any social, uh, social system. So the idea that women and men share a basic nature, so they're not different in nature, they're different in expression of their createdness very specific definitions of freedom and happiness. Uh, secular feminism tends to focus on radical autonomy and the, the self as the arbiter of what's true, beautiful, and good. Uh, new feminism uh, sort of harks back to an earlier tradition of freedom as the power to give and to love, and that's true for men and women. And that you can kind of see here that generosity and responsibility, to, these are very consistent with Catholic social teaching like principle of solidarity. Uh, the church also has been very explicit back into some talks I found from Pius XII about how women should be in the workforce in all kinds of different ways. And if they're having trouble with that, it's because society doesn't make it easy enough to raise children and have a satisfying occupation at the same time. That's another whole policy conversation we could have. And part of this is a discussion about the special genius of women. And uh, we could talk about that too, the idea that women, because of their biological connection to child rearing and childbearing, uh, see the world in a different way that can be very useful. Not to say that Hillary Clinton, just because she's female, will make a great Secretary of State or President, but she could if she understood herself in Catholic terms. There are some convergences here with uh, different kinds of uh, secular social science, something called care feminism, and we can talk about these at another time. Um, the church has been talking about new feminism for a long time. This is a, a piece of work uh, put out by the Pontifical Council for the Family that uh, unfortunately stalled out because it was so controversial because they said things like marriage has to be between a man and a woman. And, but the lexicon has an interesting and colorful history. Uh, the people who don't like the church spotted this right away and tried to sue the people who produced it for defamation. Two sources here that I would strongly recommend, 
uh, and these are referenced in the, um, in the paper. Uh, Erica Bakiaki's book, which is 2010, I think, Women, Sex, and the Church, a really great set of readings, quite contemporary, cuts across theology, philosophy, political thought, and uh, some sociology. And then an earlier book, Women in Christ, by uh, Michelle Schumacher. And I, I, isn't, the faces are interesting. I mean, I know they do this to sell the box of cereal, but <laughs> it is kind of interesting that the women's faces need to be seen in a particular kind of way. You can think about that. There we are. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.